0: Hello and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Murtazali in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about human rights violations in Iran. The recent execution of a young wrestler named Naveed Afkari, the ongoing protests against the government in the past two years, and how the Islamic Republic is using force and violence to crack down and repress the protesters. My guest today is Hadi Qaimi, an internationally recognized expert on Iran and human rights and the founder and executive director of the Center for Human Rights in Iran in New York. Hadi, welcome to the Iran podcast.
1: Thank you, Negarjan. Pleasure to be on your program.
0: It's great to have you. Let's talk about Navid Afkari to begin with. He was an Iranian wrestling champion a young man I believe 27 and he was just recently and very suddenly executed in Iran in a case that's very um, unusual and there's so many unknowns And he was originally, I believe, arrested two years earlier in relation to anti-government protests that were going on in Iran. Tell us a little bit about this case, as much as you know, and what happened.
1: Sure. I mean, uh, this case came to everybody's attention uh, pretty late, unfortunately, which is a sign of the opaqueness of Iranian judiciary, even in very important cases where the life of people are online. Only the last few weeks, details of his case were revealed that there is such a person. He was a young 27, 28-year-old wrestler, a very working class man. Um, he was from city of Shiraz, where I'm from, so I've looked into where he lived and his background. And uh, he was a working man. And it turns out that back in July and August of 2018, he, uh, when the entire country... Uh, kind of uh, experienced a very spontaneous grassroots and uh, widespread uh, protest throughout the country. In Shiraz, it was one of the hot cities where the numbers were large. And again, it was very much driven in working class neighborhoods. It turns out he and his two brothers were in the protests. Uh, Two of them were arrested. And uh, then in August, They were accused of murder in addition to agitating against the state by participating in protests. It turns out that there was a what we call plainclothes security agent in the crowd of protesters monitoring them. He had been potentially identified. We have no idea what really happened to him. All we know is that in the same time or shortly a few days after the protests, he was uh, attacked by a knife, and killed by uh, unknown uh, attackers. Uh, people who had arrested Navid after that, in relation to protests, uh, uh, charged him. Charged him with the murder, and uh, from what we know from Navid firsthand through an audio tape he sent from prison. Uh, He says that he had nothing to do with the murder or his brothers. They were all tortured to get a confession, a routine process in Iran's judiciary. And uh, I'll make it short so we can talk about specific details. But basically, he was given two death sentences, one for uh, uprising against the state, acting against the national security, acting against God uh and the other one for the murder under the law of retribution Mm. so uh those two death penalty uh, sentences became known only about three weeks ago and there was a huge outcry inside outside country and as the details were becoming clear the, the state rushed and literally within hours decided to execute him and last Saturday morning we woke up in shock having found out he has been executed
0: mm-hmm. exactly and as we know even under Iranian law usually the family is called for a final visit it seems like the execution was very rushed and sudden, as you were saying. And this comes in the wake of a recent um, death sentence, basically triple uh, death sentence to other uh, young protesters, three other men and with a massive online campaign, public outcry. Basically, the executions were halted, at least for now. And I think everyone was expecting, or a lot of people were expecting, that a similar situation may happen to Navid, especially because he was an athlete, he was a champion. And the sports community, international sports community, actually uh, united and launched this very massive, I would say, online campaign, even to the point that the U.S. president, President Trump, even was tweeting about it. Why? Why do you think the rush or the sudden execution, How? what was special about this uh, specific person or this case that happened this way?
1: So I, I didn't go into great details of the case, but I want to emphasize that based on everything that has come out, even from the state side, uh, but mostly from lawyers who have studied the case or pre- representing Navid, there is plenty of evidence that he was innocent and there is nothing... Uh, hard evidence tying him to this individual or the murder. Uh, also, one thing that has been not mentioned much in the news is that several of prosecutors' witnesses who had given testimony against Naveed in one form or another in the court uh had recanted and written to judiciary, filed um, uh, official papers with the judiciary that uh, those testimonies were false, and they were taking it back. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is great, great concern that uh, Iran rushed to execute an innocent young man. Why? Uh, The big picture analysis is basically that for the past year, we are seeing a A huge push by Iran's judiciary to act as a political tool for the state, something it always does anyway, but now very blatantly, uh, by trying to tame protesters and intimidate the general public and uh, carrying out uh, executions. You mentioned three protesters. Uh, We already have had one protester executed. Uh, uh, about a month ago that didn't get much attention but now we know through Navid's lawyer that there are at least 30 cases of protesters on the death row. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why is that? Uh, Why are they trying to intimidate the public so much and rush to execute protesters? I believe this is uh, the Islamic Republic feeling at its most vulnerable and insecure, having seen cycles of protest erupt without leadership, without organization, and uh, keep repeating themselves. In November 2019, we witnessed the largest one, one of the largest ones, which led to a week of massacre in Iran. Mm -hmm. We know internet was shut off and a massacre was carried out pretty much from the very first hours of protests beginning. The government itself was silent for many months and eventually admitted to just over 200 um, execu- uh, people being killed in the streets. Amnesty from afar has uh, compiled about 300 names or more. Uh, slightly more, uh, I personally believe given lack of access to the country and knowing everything happened, but from the kind of shooting to kill that was done in November, uh, I believe as many as a thousand could have been killed, but regardless, even their own 200 number is way too large to accept, mm-hmm. which was really the first time since the 1980s when the state came out with guns to shoot people down to kill. Uh, The testimonies are horrifying how they were shooting at the head and the heart and the back, making sure this is not just cause injury, but death. Mm. why and why these executions? Again, I think Islamic Republic is uh, insecure. It feels it has lost a lot of legitimacy, especially with other events such as the downing of the Ukrainian jet with Iranian passengers, such as their handling of COVID, such as the economic meltdown the country undergoing. Uh, So, I'm afraid that the older generation such as head of the judiciary, Ayatollah Raisi, are going back to their 1980s playbook when they needed to consolidate power and put out any opposition to their uh, new rule. Mm -hmm. We know in the 1980s, the state carried out around 10,000 executions over that decade, political executions of uh, opponents and dissidents. Uh, i believe they they think that that kind of reaction is the way now to consolidate their power and keep the protests in check mm-hmm. and that is a, a horrifying idea and i don't think today's Iranian society by any means will accept it and we saw that about three young protesters a month ago the outcry for navid's case i think they rushed it because they saw momentum building and a lot of evidence to his innocence coming and they they have this of saving face. They don't want to step back. They had to do that a month ago about the other three protesters. This time within Iran, there was still too much fear for average and famous opinion makers to speak out. Mm -hmm. A month ago, everybody spoke out. It began in Iran. They couldn't control it. They had to step back. This time it was mostly international, even though in Iran, people knew they they weren't daring like famous writers or uh, actors or celebrities or other sports people, the way they had reacted a month ago on Twitter. This time it was about to begin that wave. And I think they rushed it to prevent another moment when they have to step back and look weak. Mm. And it has really become about this political push and pull between society and government uh, rather than about justice and evidence.
0: So just to um, recap, it's not only about the specific case or the public pushback, but it's also basically making an example of the protesters for others to basically not dare to come out and continue as these protests are are ongoing and i want to talk about the 1980s i'm glad you mentioned that i want to talk about that a little bit later but let's still um, focus on these recent protests you mentioned the november protests they were the largest but it wasn't the only wave there has been waves of ongoing basically anti-government protests in the past at least couple of years many of them at the beginning tied to economic issues but then also they get very political the chants are very raw and the demographics of these protests are also very interesting as opposed to I don't know maybe the green movement that was at least led or the backbone of it was the urban middle class it seems like there's a large portion of, the wor- of, of these protests that are working class Iranians, people who seem to be young or unemployed and in a state of having nothing to lose, yeah. uh, basically yeah. taking to the street out of desperation. Talk about this demographic a little bit and basically the protests that we've been seeing in the past two years and why it has um, frightened the Islamic Republic so much. Uh,
1: I'm glad you're bringing out uh, these dimensions of the protests. They're very important and that what makes them very different than 2009 or other times when we've had massive protests. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe uh, generation after generation of Iranians as they step into especially their late teens and uh, their 20s, the ages that are formative and are about development of one's life in social, economic, and career-wise, education, all kinds of things that everybody deals with as they grow up. Um, have felt such a frustration that their options are so limited and they can never fulfill their potentials even a, a small amount of their potential Uh, Under Islamic Republic, if, you know, in the universities, they're controlled one way or another, even regarding what they can write a thesis or paper on in a social science course, let's say, or what majors they can pursue in what career wise, economy wise, uh, 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 artists. Everybody feels like they're put. And you yourself grew up in that society. Mm-hmm. You may know what I'm talking about. That frustration that uh, they see that their potentials can never be realized. A lot of it due to state interference or limitations or, or or failed policies. And then politically, there was certain kind of legitimacy with elections, having reformists, having a certain kind of... Uh, Uh, a spectrum of political actors in the parliament or uh, the executive power or newspapers having some way of uh, making themselves heard. The last two, three years, we really have had a meltdown in The concept of people feeling like they have any presentation in their government, basically their government with these executions and the massacre of November is telling them that I am not a government of the people for the people or by the people, Mm -hmm. all of those things have made. People are uh, isolated, not isolated, but alienated from their political system. And as you mentioned, they have reached a point with the economic meltdown when they have nothing to lose. And no one represents them. No one is even, you know, uh, making a semblance of representation for them with this recent uh, parliament and even executive branch. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I think that's why this generation is out on the street. And they are, from day one, have made it clear they are not fooled by a reformist and principalist dichotomy, especially with the way election and monitorings have been gone. So um, I think this is the complete separation of society and state from each other and uh, uh, no legitimacy left in the eye of the young people who are growing up, especially women who, who feel uh, doubly targeted because of their status in the society and the way they are treated by law and practice.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the economic situation. Let's also talk a little bit about um, sanctions. I wanted to bring this up later, but um, now that you mentioned the economic situation, and mm-hmm. I saw a great piece you had back in March on NBC News uh, where you talk about Um, sanctions on the coronavirus, but I also want to talk about the past two years and maximum pressure. In your piece, you argued that Trump's refusal to relax Iran sanctions during the coronavirus threatens everyone, but also taking a step back in the past two years since uh, President Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal and imposed economic sanctions back on Iran. How has that Mm -hmm. uh, basically played? We know it's impacted the Iranian economy very much. How does that factor play in to this big picture that we're talking about?
1: Well, definitely it is the cause of the economic difficulties. When you take a country and kick it out of the entire international financial and trade system and uh, uh, basically clamp its wings to do economic activity with the outside world, that country will suffer tremendously. And uh, there is no question the sanctions the last two years have brought Iranian economy to uh, edge of a cliff at the same time uh i like six seven years ago i fully thought the sanctions were completely unjustified and collective punishment Mm -hmm. i still do hold that belief but in terms of who is responsible for it i also believe the fact that the islamic republic has not had any coherent economic policy for 40 years that it has become basically a state of nepotism and distribution of all resources among its base, and its and private sector is nothing, uh, but dominated by state actors or well-connected people. The fact that when sanctions were uh, uh, somewhat removed, the starting JPRCA implementation, and yet the Iran, average Iranian didn't see any benefit of it really. Uh, The fact that the Islamic Republic did not focus on using the opportunity uh, after the nuclear deal to focus on the problems inside the country. It actually uh, only exasperated them by further corruption and widespread looting of uh, public resources as we come to find out every day um, through Iranian media. Mm -hmm. That also tells me that They invited the sanctions by someone like Trump. They made it so easy for him Mm -hmm. to bring back those sanctions. And as unjustified they are, bottom line is that Iran's economy has been melting down. Now Trump has accelerated it and really uh, uh, we have reached a crisis point where the government either going to put the interests of Iranian people and its national interest forefront, or it's going to put its cause and regional interests uh, as its major uh, policy driving force.
0: Mm -hmm. And we also know that sanctions contribute to an ecosystem of the corruption that you're talking about, basically making the perfect ecosystem for that kind of state corruption to thrive and to grow. Yeah,
1: actually, hardline revolutionary guards are very happy with sanctions because their economic entities uh, benefit hugely from smuggling and uh, black market and a Mm. volatile stock market or volatile uh, foreign exchange market. So for that uh, actually elite, the 1% of the country who have all the riches, it doesn't matter sanctions or no sanctions. They make their money and even more or during sanctions, so um, very strange how Iranian people come out losers uh, no matter what.
0: Exactly, the very elite, like you were saying, the Revolutionary Guards, that are supposedly the target yeah. of these yeah. sanctions, as the U.S. administration. But there is sort of an unwritten unity in a certain elite over there that in fact, welcome and have been appreciating and benefiting from sanctions over the years as opposed to... Their profit
1: margins go up hugely. Exactly. Black market makes your profit margins go up when you have resources to begin with, and then you sell it much more expensive.
0: The lack of transparency, the basically clandestine economic um, atmosphere that's created. Let's also move back to the populace a little bit and move beyond Iran's borders. We know of all these protests and the iron fist that the state has brought down to crush these protesters and the repression and very harsh sentences, thousands of people um, arrested hundreds killed on the street like you're saying security forces directly shooting as we've seen images even though yeah. we're, we're far away but we've seen images that seems like they were out there to kill and yes. part of that has also caused a wave of refugees yes. of, of Iranians who are leaving the country to headed to Europe some trying to reach North America, even though that's much harder for for Iranian refugees. And in certain European countries or in the borders of certain European countries, when we hear about camps, sometimes the number of Iranians are comparable to countries that have wars going on, like Afghanistan, like Syria.
1: Indeed. Tell us a little
0: bit about this. How big is this wave of refugees? Who are these refugees? What are they fleeing? And, And what is their situation beyond Iran's borders?
1: So we've had waves of refugees over the last 40 years, again, uh, uh, on and off. And the last big one was 2009, 2010, when Green Movement sympathizers were pushed out of the country uh, because, again, either they could not work and live a life, normal life there, or they were pursued, prosecuted, and imprisoned. So there was a huge uh, refugee mm-hmm. outflux in 2009 to 2011, especially. And now we're seeing the same thing. A lot of them contact me, especially when they reach a country like Turkey or Greece, if they're lucky. And I'm seeing a lot of ordinary people Mm -hmm. coming from different walks of life. And they fall into two categories. One is that because of the kind of life or uh, job they had, uh, and they 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 thought they could express themselves in certain areas. So I'm talking about journalists, students, activists, academics, uh, people who made their opinion known one way or another, especially during these protests, uh, they got targeted immediately at workplace and as far as prosecution. You won't believe the numbers of people I get whom I don't understand how they could Uh, bring charges of acting against national security for uh, Mm. their activities but there is a purge of uh, dissent and any challenging opinions so I see a lot of them uh, who would go to jail otherwise and lose their jobs and have nowhere left in Iran to really survive Mm. then the second wave are ordinary people who participated in the protests and they got identified and again either they were detained during the first few days and let go on bail but they still have a case or they have been known their pictures floating around Uh, so unfortunately i would say thousands of them are on the run and don't feel safe in the country And then, of course, there is always any refugee wave has a third wave, which is primarily economic driven by people uh, who not only feel the political repression, but they feel like economically they just cannot make ends meet. And uh, usually, for the sake of their children, they try to leave, and if they're young, for the sake of their future. Mm
0: -hmm. And where are they headed mainly, or where are they at least waiting on the borders?
1: Primarily countries that don't have, don't require visa for entry for Iranians, which are very few, and have a uh, UN system of refugee office to help them. So Turkey is a primary but they go. They can go as far as Georgia, for example, or some of the Central Asian countries, which don't require a visa, but the UN agencies there are not uh, very well equipped, and they have assigned their Turkey office to be the hub for Iranian nationals mainly. Some of them take risks and get smuggled or manage to arrive in Europe one way or another, legally or illegally. Uh, a lot of them over the years ended up in Australia, but I don't think we have a, this new wave heading that far, especially after what happened to the previous wave being kept in detention centers, uh, which were akin to concentration camps. Uh, so definitely Turkey is a big hub, but believe it or not, I even have a case now in Brazil wow. where someone managed to get that far, uh, but unfortunately through a lot of... Um, difficulties and not through legal means. So uh, now we're trying to get them out of jail because once uh, to enter a country illegally they are going to ask what for and so on. So I see them spreading all over but the bulk is in uh, uh, Turkey and toward uh, Europe as far as they can get.
0: Now let's move back to um, not only just the 1980s. I want you to talk about the 1980s and then um, take a look at the past four decades and uh, basically the resume of the Islamic Republic's uh, human rights or the record. Um, but first, for Maybe some of our listeners who don't know or don't remember, let's talk about the 1980s and how basically the iron fist of the state came down back then, that you were making comparisons to what happened last November.
1: Sure. And actually, if we're going to talk about uh, especially human rights atrocities, uh, which were uh, in Iran the most horrific of the entire past 100 years, I would say, uh, it really, the stage got set on the eve of the revolution's triumph and victory. In that February 12th, 1979, a lot of us didn't recognize what was about to happen. And it was unfolding in slow motion. It began with the executions of uh, the Shah's generals and pol- top politicians, about 10 of them, I believe, on the roof of the building that Khomeini was residing in Tehran after he had arrived. Immediately during the first few nights of the revolution, we all saw this extrajudicial executions take place without any trial, without any uh, proper uh, respect for any due process. And the majority of politicians and political forces were cheering on because these people were repressing them and even killing them in the streets Till a few days before. I'm talking about the head of the, for example, military in Tehran and Isfahan and the Prime Minister, Hoveida, and so on. So these people, yeah, there was no love for them, but taking them at midnight and putting them in front of the firing squad was really the beginning of the reign of terror of the 1980s and no one really opposed it that much. And it quickly started to become a norm. I was there, I was very involved as a young person monitoring everything or trying to learn everything that was happening. And I was horrified that by spring of 1979, again, we had political prisoners. Again, we had censorship and closure of uh, independent media. Uh, so this all happened as the Islamic Republic tried to define itself and uh, consolidate power. And of course, the revolution was a spectrum of political forces and tendencies. Just one element of it was Khomeini's uh, uh, political force. Uh, but he was definitely a political genius in the way that he managed to purge everybody else away from power and not let them to become part of the new state. And uh, then uh one of these political groups, which had fairly, you know, large popularity, especially among middle class and young people, uh, uh, quite a few of them, but the largest one was called Mujahideen Khal Organization uh and quite a few smaller leftist forces who kept on trying to survive as the opposition um, were forced underground and by june 30 1980 they had formed an alliance actually with the sitting president banisad to push back against the islamists Uh, but uh, had to go underground and their leaders flee the country and banisad flee the country and uh, there they made a decision to go back to their roots, which was a guerrilla movement, urban guerrilla movement during the Shah in the 60s and 70s. So they declared basically an upri- armed uprising and took much of their members, many of them untrained in guerrilla urban art warfare, underground, uh, hoping that uh, resist this uh, consolidation of power. And it backfired, was a huge miscalculation, and we can have historians talk about it. Iranian officials like to call it a civil war. Uh, I believe it was an uprising forced underground and radicalized, and uh, both sides are guilty of violence. Uh, But the state violence really paled uh, in contrast to the other violence, because they didn't go. There were, for example, assassination waves by MEK members, MKO members. Uh, They didn't focus on who has guns and who is doing the assassination and plotting. They focused on anyone and everyone who had any sympathy for these dissidents and opposition groups, leftists and uh, others and Mujahideen. So as I mentioned, throughout the revolution, they had really grown roots among a large segment of the population, especially young people. So if you had a 15, 16-year-old high school student who was in the business of uh, of distributing their pamphlets and newspapers publicly when it was possible, and after June 30th clandestinely by dropping it, let's say, in the back garden of people overnight. Um, They targeted those people. Originally, they prosecuted and gave them large sentences. But by 1988, 1989, they started mowing them down as they were captive in prisons. And we know that in July of, I believe, 88 or 89, I'm not sure, maybe you remember better, my brain doesn't work. But that uh, July, August, there was a huge atrocity of thousands of political prisoners, many of them for the smallest of dissent, descent, um, put to death. And uh, that, uh, of course, the Iran-Iraq war helped a lot too, but it was a very dark time because there was no civil society, there was no independent voices, and uh, the country was really in a way in the middle ages of darkness. And only in the early 90s, it started to come out somewhat. And now I see attempts to bring it back, unfortunately, to that era.
0: Um, You have been working in this space, in human rights activism and documentation, for for a long time. You founded um, the center in 2008, I believe, and previously worked with Human Rights Watch, focusing on Iran and also Afghanistan, I believe. How do you think is, or what are some good methods, especially from the outside, for the international community, how... Is it possible to hold the Islamic Republic accountable when it comes to human rights violations, when it comes to you know repeated yeah. Um, yeah. scenes that we've seen, as you're saying, in the past decade, since the 1980s until, until today?
1: Correct. Right. So one thing that I think would be very effective is for uh, all countries that have relations with Iran and need to formulate a foreign policy toward Iran. To put these issues on top or equal to their other concerns. Now, any country would have, for example, trade interests with Iran. Certain countries, mostly powerful countries, have the nuclear deal on their map. And some of them have Iran's regional ambitions uh, as equally important to them. But the regime's behavior at home has never been a top priority and it's a mistake because I believe it's that behavior that makes the other behavior possible and the lack of participation or free press really or debate makes decision making in Iran very restricted to few people and uh, if we really had a more vibrant uh, society we could be debating what government's policies for example in Syria should be something that no one can do Uh, so that's one thing that I would like to see that at some point uh, most governments especially you know the ones that matter most with Iran, which means Europe, North America, South Korea, Japan, uh, China. I mean, China and Russia are going to be very difficult given they're in the same league as governments. Mm-hmm. But uh, that is one thing, that if you can elevate that domestic behavior is intimately tied to other issues. And the second thing I've noticed with the Islamic Republic, they're very good at buying time, standing their ground, and letting time bring for uh, make people forget and pressures drop off. Like in Navid's case right now, you know, if if the outrage and there is no action, after a week or two, we're moved on to the next crisis. You know, sort of like the way Trump can create diversions constantly. I've noticed they are very good to tell their own people as well as outside world that, oh, human rights concerns are a Western Europe and American machination. It's a political tool to pressure us. There is no legitimacy to it. However, if they start seeing countries from other parts of the world, from Japan to South Africa, to India, to Latin America, pick up a case, then they really feel the heat. And there was one famous case in 2010 of a woman sentenced to stoning named Sakina, uh, whose case brought Prime Minister of Japan, Prime Minister of Turkey, President of Brazil at the time, all of them making statements about her. And that I think really shook them, and uh, they took that to account. So some kind of a unity that this is not Iran's, um, uh, uh, you know, foreign detractors like U.S. and Europe who are pushing this, but they are so outrageous that many, many countries uh want to speak out and those and originally i started the center to focus on what was then called emerging powers which was brazil india south africa and turkey it looked like they could join the security council they could develop in uh into vibrant uh, countries on the international stage and foreign policy, uh, but unfortunately, that uh, we know that all of them went back and did a U-turn toward authoritarianism, more or less, almost all of them. Uh, and they never. There is no more talk of them as major uh, international players to be brought on into the un system or expand the security council uh, but that those are the times when i think we we can really reach a, have an impact but at the b- bottom line is that we need the, the islamic republic Um, will most be reflexive toward uh, domestic pressure as well Mm -hmm. but uh, given that there it's so hard to do that domestically uh, we have to help people in the country who are trying like all the lawyers who are in jail today we have about nine lawyers in jail just for defending people in courts
0: Um, you mentioned Trump, President Trump um, deflecting, and we know that he's been tweeting, sometimes even in Persian, about some of these cases or in general human rights. I also want to get your views about um, what you say is- the Islamic Republic accuses, but also we see in the um, activist community the politicization of human rights. When you hear someone like Mike Pompeo yeah. constantly talking about human rights violations by the Islamic Republic, but then taking trips, um, very friendly trips to Riyadh, for example, with Mohammed bin Salman, or um, very close uh, relations with the UAE or countries who don't necessarily have better human rights records. Uh, Than Iran, and that really gives this image that human rights is a political tool in 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 certain uh, countries or governments' uh, toolbox to pressure Iran. What are your views? Basically, is, does it help when someone like President Trump? who has been talking about basically executing or cracking down on protesters in the U.S. and within a few days talks about the human rights of Iranians. Does that help or does that how does that politicization impact actual activism and the work of people like you?
1: Uh, let me make two points. Uh, on, on one hand, I believe on moral grounds, uh, we want everybody to be speaking out when there is a massacre, when there is an unjust execution or uh, these repressive measures. We want everybody to speak out. And I welcome everybody speaking out, including Trump and Pompeo. Mm-hmm. But then the second point is what you're saying, which is so nakedly political, because allies like Saudi Arabia or Egypt who are conducting similar kind of behavior, more or less, are being welcomed and hugged and never reprimanded by this administration. So I think the impact of that is twofold. One is that it makes making international coalitions uh, against Iran's human rights behavior much more difficult as um, many countries don't want to be part of the Iran-US conflict in let's say Latin America, Africa or Asia. So I have found that it makes our work of uh, gathering these non-Western voices very difficult. Um, And at the same time, it is hypocritical, but let us not define the human rights movement or demands by a superpower who is using it politically. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason I came to do this work to try to create an independent entity that really tries to reflect the situation in Iran and the wishes of Iranian people so that it is not only these foreign ministries or state Department or presidents from anywhere who have their own agenda talking about it. Of course, they're going to do that. They're politicians. But we've got to make sure they're not the only voices in this space. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot more independent voices from media, think tanks, and civil society organizations who occupy that space. And in that sense, as long as those organizations and that bulk of the movement uh, does not become a tool of a political entity, uh, they actually will not allow those political entities to uh, use it solely for their own agenda and believe me i try very hard to try to achieve that over the past 15 years
0: i'm glad you brought that up let's finally talk about yourself a little bit sure. um, you're very active in this space you have probably the most prominent human rights organization focusing specifically on iran but many don't know that you actually have a doctorate in physics you used to teach physics and you moved to the human rights space, I guess, at some point. Tell us how that happened, why it happened, and basically a little bit of this career path that that you've taken.
1: Sure, Dagarjan, be happy. Um, so as I mentioned, I lived through the Iranian revolution and the first few, four years after it, and have a very vivid memories of the revolution and what people thought they're fighting for. And definitely one of the things they thought they were fighting for, I remember, is not to have political prisoners, not to have censorship, not to have political violence by the state um, dominating uh, the political landscape. And it was really shocking for me, as I mentioned, back in uh, April, May of 1979, uh, starting to see prisons like Evin filled up again with political prisoners and censorship coming back and everything we thought that at least for a while there'd be a freedom was rolled back. That, that really left a scar on people like me and my generation, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of them also have grown up in Iran and have become you know, active over the past 20 years because of that memory and history. So, but on the other hand, I came out of Iran as a young man to pursue my education and my passion in physics. I went on uh, in the mid 80s and 90s to get a PhD in physics and become a professor of physics by mid to late 90s. However, I did have one important experience in college uh, in the mid 80s. I had the privilege of being in a college that allowed me, in addition to science, pursuing parallel my interest in social science and especially uh, 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 Middle East history and politics. And I had a mentor, uh, Rust in Peace, who left a big impression on me named Iqbal Ahmed. Uh, an expert on Middle East, especially Israel-Palestine issue, and Iran as well. He actually had traveled to Iran right after revolution and interviewed Khomeini and had uh, kept abreast. And with him, I studied the Iranian revolution and learned a lot from him. He was the kind of academic who also believed in activism. Not just passive uh, uh, intellectual engagement. He was very active in many of the developments around Middle East and going back as far as the War of Liberation of Algeria, back in the fifties. Uh, and he left a, a big impact on me about uh, uh, wanting to be uh, uh, impactful one way or another. Even though I went and became a physics professor by '97, two big trends collided in my life to make me leave physics and become a human rights activist on Iran. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them was the emergence of reform movement in Iran. Iran, to me from afar, I hadn't traveled there all those years, was a black box. I remember being, for example, in Princeton and having to go to the library to look up a couple of newspapers in print that arrived from Iran from two weeks ago. You know, that was the way I could uh, gauge what is written or published in Iran. And then this reform movement really opened up the space. As you know, you were in Iran at the time. And suddenly there was a spring of Tehran starting in 1997. Uh, even though it disappointed many. But now that we look at it from 97 to 2005, roughly, the, Iran was uh, much, much more open than any time during these 40 years. And that excited me. Why? Because there was the other global trend, which was the emergence of Internet and online communication and access that suddenly made me able to follow developments in Iran in real time and read Iranian newspapers in the, more, in the early morning, in Tehran time, even before they were put on newsstands in Tehran because uh, they were online already as of midnight. Uh, So I just got uh, immersed in all that excitement and what was happening in Iran. I got to know many people in the country and went back there uh, for a short time in early 2000 and 2001. I felt connected with that generation, that hopeful generation that thought now is the time to make improvements, to make reforms, there is space. And uh, I was in New York, I wanted to support them. And it took me three, four years of really figuring out what is the best way. And I found the overlap of interest with many people, regardless of their political persuasions, that they thought respect for basic rights, for human dignity, Uh, which now we call human rights as a Mm -hmm. a phrase, but uh, generally the sense that uh, that unified the pursuit of this fundamental respect for human dignity and um, life uh, was very widespread in Iran across the spectrum. And uh, I believe that is the most effective way to bring positive change in Iran. So in 2004, I had an opportunity to join Human Rights Watch, uh, which was my first professional foray into human rights uh, discourse and community and from then on it's really history that i moved on to find uh, to found this organization uh, for the past uh, 12 13 years which has been uh, uh, quite active in engaging and supporting iranian human rights community
0: Well, I'm glad you did that. And on that note, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast.
1: Thank you, Negarjan. It was a great pleasure talking to you.
0: That was Hadi Raemi, Executive Director of the Center for Human Rights in Iran based in New York. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. You can subscribe to us on your podcast apps. And please don't forget to rate and review the podcast. You can also sponsor the podcast and help us continue the project and be independent. You can follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast, where we post about our future guests and upcoming episodes. Until next time, goodbye.